Thank you, Kevin, for leading us just in a time of prayer and focus and reflection. I, too, want to begin just kind of focusing on some of the realities at hand. As we think about this week, this has been a time of grieving for many families in these past days. As you know, first of all, as Kevin mentioned, for the Foth family and the sudden passing of Norm and an unexpected way in our condolences and thoughts and prayers for, for this family uh, as well. And then on Friday night, as we all know all too well, as we began to hear the tragic accident of uh, the humble Broncos and uh, the now 15 people that were killed and many seriously injured. And uh, it's something that's gaining the attention of the world in many ways. It's uh, something that connects way too intimately and painfully, I think, for the families who are directly uh, connected to this story and who are feeling the loss so deeply. Um, I know that in our church as well that there are many different connections to this story also. Um, You may be somebody who's in your own kind of place of grieving or in shock for various reasons uh, related to the kind of relationships that you may have had with different individuals that are connected to the, the people most affected by, by this uh, tragedy. But the reality is, is that even if we don't have direct connections, even if we don't have maybe immediate kind of contact or relationships with, with people in that way, it, it still is something that affects us all. It's still something that causes us all to ask uh, challenging questions. It, it raises many questions that naturally flow out of us as humans. Um, we ask questions like the details of, of, you know, what happened, where did this happen, uh, how, when, and all those kinds of things. We, we look for particular details because in some ways they help us to kind of give a frame of reference or some kind of fuller picture or understanding of the scope of what happened and some of the details of what happened. And they, they help us to start to make sense and some semblance of order of something that doesn't seem to make sense. And so questions are natural, normal, and good. But the really hard question that I think that we all come to eventually in this process at some point is the why question. Is a natural question, I think, for us to go to also in our humanness. Why does something like this happen to a busload of young men, mostly teenagers, where so many die so young? Why are so many families of these young men, along with the older adults who also died, having to go through such tragedy and grief. And so these why questions, the why question starts to really pull at the core of what grounds us. I think it starts to really pull at the core of what our worldview is. And it also starts to pull at the real core of our faith and how we understand who God is. I've walked with uh, many families at various times in their grieving, asking similar questions, looking for reasonable answers. And the best theological answer I can give in times like this with the why question is, I don't know. I can understand and I can even actually begin to explain why it is that they're suffering in the world in the broader sense. If people ask some of those questions, when we talk about a God who is love, a God who is so loving, and a God who is all-powerful, a God who is sovereign, I can begin to answer that question of, okay, so why is there evil in the world in kind of broad, sweeping, philosophical, and even theological ways? And I might even do that in a way that might convince you. But when it comes to something so intensely personal, when it comes to something 
that affects people so deeply and so intimately, and when so many young men and older adults are taken so suddenly and so tragically, that it leaves such a painful hole in the many families and in the community, I cannot actually, with any kind of intellectual integrity, give you an adequate answer of why. But simply to say, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that nothing catches God by surprise or off guard. I believe that God is still active in the world and has never left us. I believe that God is faithfully present with each one of us in the midst of all the circumstances that we go through, even the most painful and tragic ones. That he cares for us, that he walks with us, that he has given us his spirit to strengthen, comfort, and encourage us. And yet God allows tragedy and evil and suffering to be part of our human experience in ways that I can never fully understand or adequately explain. I think it's part of the mystery of the gospel that Paul is preaching in the book of Ephesians as he's writing this letter to the church, this book that we've been in for the last number of months. It's part of what Paul is pointing us to. It's another one of those tensions that we often talk about of those things that we don't fully understand that kind of seem to pull at us in two different directions and where the truth is actually found in the midst of that tension that pulls us. I believe that it's part of how God invites us to live out our faith and part of how God invites us to grow in our faith. After all, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so these tensions and these questions cause us and allow us to grow in our understanding of who God is if we allow it to do that work and to wrestle honestly with our doubts and our questions. And it's at times like this that we simply submit, God, you are Lord in heaven and I am here on earth, as the author of Ecclesiastes says. Or in Isaiah 55 where the prophet declares, God, your ways are higher than my ways and I don't understand your ways. But that reality that God is sovereign, God is king, God is on the throne, and we are here on earth. And that some of the things that God allows to happen in our lives, we cannot fully understand or explain. And so I would like to turn that question of why in a different direction. Or maybe just sort of park it on a shelf for a while and let it kind of stay in the tension around it. And rather have us ask the question, who? Who is it that we put our trust in? What is it that we put our trust in? Who is it that will be faithfully present with us in all circumstances? Who is it that can hold the weight of our hopes and our dreams, our expectations, our disappointments, even our pain and our grief? And also, how is it that we put our trust in him? How do we do that? How do we actually live out that kind of faith? I think in Matthew chapter 7, there is a story that Jesus tells that is helpful in that question of how do we actually put our trust in him and how do we actually get a sense of what our foundation is and what it is and who it is that we put our trust in in times of challenge and difficulty. And many of you know the story well. It's right at the end of Matthew chapter 7, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus' greatest teaching that he is, has with his disciples and those that are listening in. And he's, he's talking about what it means to live a kingdom life. He's saying, here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And so chapter after chapter in Matthew, he's 
describing this picture of the kingdom and how to live in this kingdom of God. And then he comes to the end of chapter 7 and he tells this story, this interesting story that many of you would know well and some of you learned it as a kid. And this story where he actually talks about two houses and these houses represent people's lives. And he says, you know, people were building these houses. And the commonality in the story is that both of these houses experience storms. And it says how the rains come down and the floodwaters rise and the winds, they start to blow. But then there's a difference in the story. And and Jesus says that the difference, and after all this teaching in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, he says the difference is this. He says, those who hear my words and obey. He says, they are the ones who build their house on a rock. They are the ones whose house will stand when the storms come. But he says, the difference is, is those who hear my words and actually don't obey and don't live with putting the weight of their lives and their hopes and their expectations on these things that I teach you, they are the ones who build their house, houses on a sand base. And those are the houses that come crashing down in the midst of storms. And I think this teaching that Jesus gives us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is instructive for us today. In some of the questions that we ask in times of storm. Because you see, every day we put our trust in all kinds of things. We all believe in something. We just don't always know exactly what that is that we believe in. We don't maybe think it through all the time. It's sometimes deceptive. And it's elusive. And we're not exactly clear what it is that we actually do put our trust in. And what Jesus teaches in that story is that What storms do is they reveal foundations, is they reveal exactly and actually what your life is built on, and they reveal who or what we put our trust in. And so how we think about God as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really important, and especially as we come to times of struggle and grief and challenge, because you see, we're all pre-wired to worship, and God has created us to be in relationship with him. And we all worship something without reservation. But again, we don't always know exactly what that is or who that is. A.W. Tozer said this one time. He said, whatever a person thinks about when they think about God is the most important thing about that person. Interesting quote. So what is it that we think about when we think about God? Many people say that they don't believe in God. But if they were to actually explain to me the God that they say they don't believe in, I would say, well, I actually don't believe in that God either. We have different views of God. And sometimes if people are honest about how they think about God, I would say, well, actually, that's not the God I put my trust in either. And so we have these inaccurate views and these misunderstandings of of who God is and what his character is, what his nature is. Let me describe a few of them for you. Some of the categories or, or titles or pictures maybe of who God is. For some, they worship the it God. Just sort of this it God, this faceless God, this nameless God, this faraway force of light or energy that is untouchable and unknowing. For some people, their God, if they're honest, is is the me God. It's life is about me. I am actually God, if we're going to be that honest. I'm in charge. I call the shots. Uh, it's all about me, and it's a very humanistic approach to God, really. For other people, it's the grandpa God, God that is old and out of date, maybe out of touch, 
kind of wags his finger, stop running in the church, don't make noise, has a long gray beard. Or maybe it's the Siri or Alexa God. The God that has instant response to our troubles, on demand all the time. You just kind of say something and God responds, does it for you. Or maybe it's the scorekeeper God. The God who walks around with a clipboard and and is always watching your life and, and kind of ticking off all the things and making, you know, kind of like Santa Claus, checking if you're naughty or nice and just sort of keeping you in line. Or maybe it's the stained glass God. Lives at the church, doesn't get out a lot. One-dimensional God, stuck in a building, not really connected to real life. Looks good, looks good, but doesn't do much. Or maybe it's the no-God God, of an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe that there is a God. You spend your whole life proving that you don't believe in God and also responding to the absence of God. Or maybe it's the PC God, the politically correct God, one of the dominant gods in our culture today. Whatever you want him to be. Sort of like the Mr. Potato Head God. Just put on all the appendages, whatever you want. But here's the thing. God didn't leave it up to us to decide who he is. God didn't leave it up to us to articulate his attributes and kind of shape them in our own image. He gave us his word. He gave us scripture. He tells us his incredible story of who he is and how he created and why. And his love for humankind and his story of redemption and how even after we sinned and we fell away and we went our own way and had our own idols, he pursued us with his love. And some people say that, you know, Genesis 1 to 3 tells this story of God's creation and then the fall and the sinfulness of man and the choices that we make and All of the rest of Scripture is actually God pursuing us to redeem us to his heavenly Father. That's an incredible story of who God is and the kind of God that we are called and invited to worship and to follow. And then if that's not enough, he actually came himself. He says, you know, I have described, there's a description of who he is in his word and we can read it through Scripture And the stories that we see throughout all of Scripture. But then as if that wasn't enough, then he says, okay, I will come myself in the form of Jesus. And so he comes in the flesh. And just in case we had any kind of wonderings about who God is and what this God is about, what his characters are about, he lived among us. And he actually walked among the people and discipled people. And they ate with them and they did ministry with them and they saw him and they experienced him. And then they witnessed his death, and his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, he walked with them again to prove that this was real, that we've been celebrating in this Easter season. This incredible story of resurrection life. And this is the God in whom we can put our trust. Even in the midst of storms, maybe especially in the midst of storms, this is the guy that we don't have to wonder of who he is or what characters he, characteristics he has. He has articulated that in his word and he has lived that in Jesus Christ. And we see that. And we can experience that. And he has placed his Holy Spirit intimately within us to empower us, to fill us, to reveal more of himself to us. But I want to shift into our Ephesians text. And I hope this makes sense. 
But I think that our Ephesians text actually helps us in this understanding of who God is and even the question of, so how do we respond in the face of tragedy? Like our province and the town of Humboldt and people are going through at this time. How do we respond? What is it that we do? You know, I think in the face of tragedy, one of the greatest things that the church can do is to be the church. Is to keep preaching the gospel and living the gospel in tangible ways that show a unified witness of what God is all about. To be the church in people's lives individually, to be the church corporately and how we respond in whatever ways that that looks like, but that we can point to and that we can know this knowable God and point others to this knowable God and put our trust in Him. That our message with our words and the message of our lives become the most relevant and important response that we can have. It's to live the gospel, to believe the gospel, to be the gospel, be the church, to live in obedience, response, and worship to this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Exactly what Jesus said. in his story of the two houses in the storms. He says what matters is not only do you hear the word, but that you obey the word. Paul says it this way. He says, live a life worthy of your calling, church. Live a life worthy of your calling. The church is called to live out of this calling. You know, Paul spends the whole first few chapters of Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians describing this incredible gospel story. And we've been walking through that in the preceding weeks, this story where he is declaring and he says, people, if you just understood this mystery of the gospel and this wonderful God that we worship, if you could just understand what God has done and who he is and what he planned from the beginning of time, that he predestined us to know this, to experience this, that he calls us to be children of the King." And he does that by his grace, not by anything that we do, but he does it by grace that you are called (coughs) to live out a faith that is a response to what this good news story is. And that you people who felt like you were outsiders, and maybe you were outsiders like you Gentiles and you sinners and you people who don't know this story and weren't initially invited into this story of God, now you are brought in and you, you outsiders are now insiders because God draws near to each one of us. So Paul is articulating this story in Ephesians 1 to 3 over and over again, and then he's calling the church to be the church. And he says, and you know what? This is part of the mystery, is that God has put the church in place to be part of this mission and to tell this story and to live into this story. And so in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's articulating this incredible story of God, of what God has done throughout all of history And then he makes a shift in chapter 4 and he says, okay, now how do you live out of response to this? This is how your story enters into God's story. And how you live in response to this. And he says, here's what it looks like. And he talks about being unified. And he talks about being one. And he talks about how we are all part of one gospel, one baptism, one Lord and Savior. And we're part of this incredible story. And God has given you gifts to be the church. Press into those gifts. Use those gifts. Understand those gifts. Know those gifts. And be the church in those gifts. And be a unified church so that you can actually be a tangible witness to the world. And invite others into this story because of what they see happening in your life. And then he comes to this text, our text for today. 
in Ephesians 4, chapter 17, to the end of the chapter, and he, he describes living a life of obedience, just like Jesus did. He describes living a life of, if you want to know what it's like to build your life or your house on a foundation of rock, it's living in obedience to what I've taught you, is what Jesus says. He says that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus, is actually to believe what he says and to believe what he's called you to do and to live differently, to think differently, to be differently. So he says this, let's read Ephesians 4, verses 17. I'll just read to 24. Paul says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Paul wasn't very politically correct. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul is saying, now church, because of what God has done, because of this great gospel story, you are called to live into it, to live differently. He says, don't live as the Gentiles do. What does that mean? He's not talking about a particular person or like don't live like those people, but he say, don't live in the general way of Gentile thinking and futility. Or another way that you might put it is, he might say, you don't live like mainstream Canadian culture. Live differently. Think differently. He talks about this darkened understanding. He talks about futility of thinking. You know, the word futility that's used here in this passage is the same word that is used in Ecclesiastes when the author of Ecclesiastes talks about life is meaningless and how he pursues all of these things like money, sex, uh, education, and, and, he, and he pursues them to the point of putting his weight on them, of putting his trust in them and then finding it empty or futile. It's the same word that's used here that Paul uses when he says the futility of their thinking. It doesn't lead anywhere that has substance. It won't hold up under the weight of storms. And he says you need to think differently. You need to think differently and be changed in your mindset, changed in your thinking. Because we always sin in the mind before we sin in the physical. And so if you want to live a life that is different in terms of your spiritual life and harnessing in those sins and living differently is you have to change the way that you think. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given over to sensuality. Because you see, losing sensitivity leads to all kinds of sins. Sexual sin, distorted views of what is right and good, distorted views of money and greed. He says you need to think differently than mainstream Canadian culture of how you view money and how much of a foundation it is in your life and how much of an idol it might be for you that you may or may not even recognize. When I read these words of Paul in Ephesians that we've just read, it reminds me of what he says in Romans 12 where he's teaching about being a living sacrifice. And he says that we're called to be this living sacrifice. And he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying the same thing here. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be as the Gentiles are. Do not be as mainstream Canadian culture is. Don't be conformed by those patterns of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then Paul goes on and he says, you need to put off that old self and you need to put on that new self. God has given you a new identity. You are a new creation, a new creature. You need to put that on every day. And you need to be really intentional in the disciplines of that, of actually putting off and putting on. And then he, he talks about these different habits and the different ways, and he gives examples of, of, of essentially commentary on what this new life looks like, this new self looks like. It's, it's how we view and understand sex and sexuality. It's how we view and understand money and greed and living a generous life. It's the attitudes and habits around those things. He says, put off falsehood. Speak truth to one another. He says, do not let any, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen according to their needs. And so he says, you need to live tangibly differently, controlling our anger and our tongue, being reconcilers with each other. He says, don't steal. In fact, go the opposite way. You need to work hard so that you make money so that you can actually give generously to people in need. You need to live the opposite way. Instead of taking and stealing everything for yourself, you need to think about others and be about others. So he's describing sins of the tongue and of the mind of the wallet, and of the body. Not an exhaustive list again, not that these capture all of them, but pretty good sampling of things that cause us to stumble. Pretty good sampling of things that cause us to not build our lives on a foundation of rock. These are common ones that throw us off. So Paul is describing here the disciplines of discipleship. And he says, you know, if you really believe this story of God, if you really believe this gospel that I've been proclaiming that Jesus lived and proclaimed, then the way you respond to that is you live lives obedient to that. You live differently. You think differently. You follow the example of Christ. The end of what in our Bibles is chapter 4 and verse 32, I want to read that verse in the first a couple of lines from chapter 5, where Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do we respond? How do we respond when things happen in life that we can't explain or understand? I think Paul would say, be the church. Be the church. Believe the gospel. Preach the gospel. Live the gospel. Put your weight on this truth. Live in response to it. And be a unified witness to the world that shows that you live and believe differently. Proclaim God's story and live your story into it. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is always alive and active and powerful. It shapes us, it changes us, it tells us of your story. It tells us 
an incredible picture of who you are as a God who pursues us, a God who loves us, a God who is holy, a God who is judge, a God who is filled with grace, a God who gave everything for us, who died on the cross, who came to be among us. Lord, what an amazing gospel story that we get to be a part of. And Lord, I thank you for these words of challenge from Paul that we are called to be the church, that we are called into these disciplines of discipleship in order to build our lives on a foundation of rock. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that you would help us to be that kind of responsive people, that we would live lives of obedience and worship and thankfulness. And God, that in the midst of that, that there would be a ripple effect of this story going out to all the world. And just as I heard this morning somebody say that there's this ripple effect of grief that can go out from a story like we've encountered this week, there's also a ripple effect of your grace and your love that can go out to the world in the midst of that. So Lord, I thank you that you enter into our stories, that you invite us forward and you call us to trust you. Lord, I pray right now and we pray right now for these families who have been so affected. We pray for your grace. We pray for your peace. We pray for your comfort. We pray that there would just be a real intimacy of your Holy Spirit in their lives. We pray, Lord, for those leaders that are are already leading in the community and already serving in different places and for the vigil that will happen tonight and the services that will happen in the days and weeks ahead. Lord, may, you, may your grace be upon these leaders, and especially I think of those spiritual leaders who will be standing up and be declaring your goodness and your story, and I pray your anointing upon them, and that your gospel story will go out with hope, will go out with power, and that it will bear much fruit. And so God, we just give ourselves again to you, and we give you thanks. Help us to be the church by the power of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you go from here today, I want to leave you with a, a couple of words, first of all, from Lamentations. And as I was thinking about these last uh, days and hours uh, over this course of the weekend and what people are experiencing, I was thinking of Lamentations again. Uh, it's a book about lament. That's why it's called that. And it's the people of Israel returning to Jerusalem, and they're seeing the brokenness of their city and the destruction of everything around them. And they're coming out of exile, and, and nothing is as they remember it, and everything is lost, or so they think. And then in the midst of that, in Lamentations 3, they declare this, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. And that's just a declaration that I pray that you will leave here with today, regardless of maybe what you're experiencing or feeling in times of challenge and trial, that you would still dare to hope because of what God has done. I want to just conclude with a prayer from Ephesians 3, that well-known prayer, and just pray it over each one of us as we go from here today. Let's pray together. Paul says this, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that being rooted and established in love, may you have the power 
together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.